That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of it. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What, are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's what they That's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. Is there any argument you can use to wake him up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> uh, not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello and welcome once again to EMJ Live. It's a beautiful summer day in South Bend, Indiana. And uh, I was fortunate enough one week ago uh, to go to a wedding in Muskegon, Michigan, a uh, town on the lake about 120 miles north of here. Uh, at that wedding, uh, Liam, uh, we uh, celebrated the marriage of Lee, Mr. and Mrs. Liam Noonan. Liam uh, had gone to Russia uh, met a young lady there, and Katya brought her back, and now they got married. It was a beautiful wedding, beautiful service. Uh, but the most beautiful part in many ways was the uh, afterwards when everybody got out on the church steps and had filled up the entire church steps, and there were all these beautiful young girls there. Uh, this was the fruit of the marriages of the people in that congregation. Uh, they're all heading toward uh, marriage age, and it was a pleasure to see them all there celebrating this marriage. It was a pleasure to see these two young people getting married. Uh, and uh, the reception was uh, held in a lumberyard. It's the only time I've ever been to a wedding reception in a lumberyard. But uh, Baker Lumber has a real significant role uh, in Muskegon. Uh, it's been there for 150 years. Liam worked there. 
the lumber, the owners of the lumber yard uh, take seriously their role as a big employer in that area. And it was just a great uh, occasion. Uh, at that point, when we were in the lumber yard, the father of the groom, my friend Curry Noonan, stood up and he gave a little speech, in, an emotional speech, in which he mentioned me out of the blue and said that I had to ro a role to play in this marriage, in this wedding. And the role was uh, largely brought about by my son, my oldest son, Adam, who, uh, after he graduated from Harvard, decided to go to Russia. This was 1992-93, around this time, when the Russians were our friends because we were looting their economy and were always friendly to people who were being looted by, uh, uh, this was being orchestrated by Jeffrey Sachs uh, at that time, who was working with uh, big Jewish oligarchs, both in Wall Street and in Russia to basically transfer the wealth of the Russian nation to these few people. Boris Yeltsin was president at that point. Jeffrey Sachs was his right-hand advisor uh, uh, in charge of the looting. And Boris Yeltsin's job was to stay drunk uh, for his entire time in office so that these Jews could loot the country. Uh, that's why we were friendly. Adam has been married now for going on 30 years. They have eight children. Uh, he brought, he met his wife at the Catholic Church in Vladivostok. This was always a Catholic Church. It was never Russian Orthodox. It was created by the Czechs who built the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and Vladivostok is the eastern terminus of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. So that inspired Liam to go over to Russia. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much I admire the courage of uh, a young man who can do this. Uh, now, I have to say, I did something similar. Uh, when Adam was a baby, I took my wife and I went to Germany where I got a job teaching. And I know the sense of where you walk into a room and you can't understand what the people are saying. And you feel totally helpless. Uh, and the room I happened to walk into was the classroom where I had to give, uh, not only teach my classes, but I had to hold PTA meetings in Germany about six weeks after I got there. Uh, so that cured me of ever being afraid of speaking in public, because if I could do that then, I can do, certainly do this in my native uh, language. Adam, I think, was inspired by his experience in a foreign country. Uh, he learned the language. He speaks fluent Russian. Liam was inspired by him, and he learned the language, and they both ended up getting married. This is a type of heroism that is uh, expected of young men. Uh, they uh, have to strike out on their own. Uh, there was a whole system of apprenticeship in Germany uh, for centuries, and if you got a job, if you're working for your father at a bakery, you had to take a lehrjahr or an apprentice year, and you had to go someplace else. You couldn't stay at home. You had to go someplace else and fend for yourself in a foreign culture. Uh, didn't need to be far away. Bavaria was a foreign culture if you came from Prussia at that time. Uh, but there was, it's kind of like a rite of passage, and it's part of the heroism that is expected of young people. 
who have to create a life on their own, and the only way you're going to create a life of your own is by getting married. Now, I don't want to denigrate the evangelical councils, and I know you can have a vocation to the priesthood and so on and so forth, but that's the exception that proves the rule, and the rule is uh, married life. And this is precisely what uh, this generation, this younger generation, the generation of Liam, who's in his 20s, uh, they've been deprived of that. Uh, it was because of the heroism of the uh, Curry Noonan family. They raised uh, eight children uh, under uh, adverse circumstances. Uh, it's always hardship, but uh, this was hardship, and uh, they persevered, and now they're bearing the fruit, the fruit that they're, uh, the, the, the children that they're raised are bearing fruit. And it's true of that, uh, that whole generation in Muskegon at, at this parish. The music at the wedding ceremony was beautiful because of the Drost family. Mike Drost is a, was a professional uh, musician. Uh, his wife uh, is the lady who does the singing at the, at the uh, parish in Muskegon. Uh, beautiful voice. They uh, did double duty. They came back and played lounge lizard songs at the, at the uh, lumber yard uh, for the reception. Uh, but the mass was beautiful. Uh, Mike, at one point, uh, when I first met, actually, I first met all of these people, Mike and Curry, at Fiddler's Hearth, when I was playing Irish music there. They came down to visit me and uh, just showed up. And at one point, we got discussing music, uh, and I said, you should, um, you should teach Irish music to, to your children. Uh, there were all these big families. They all had little children at that point, and he actually did what I said, and that bore fruit as well. There's a whole generation there who learned how to play music, uh, learned to understand beauty as three years old, playing Irish tunes on a tin whistle. And as I said, all those people are reaching an age where they are now going to be looking for husbands or wives, uh, and that's uh, the fruit of this good uh, environment and the fruit of membership in the Catholic Church, and in particular, a parish, a local community. It's not exactly their local community, but it is a local community. So I'm sitting at the wedding reception, and someone says to me, have you spoken with Andrew Anglin? Uh, if you're out there, Andrew, uh, this is about you. Uh, I said, uh, no. I said, I tried to reach him. Uh, but through Ron Unz, but I couldn't get his uh, contact information. Andrew Anglin, if I, as I remember, once said, if uh, E. Michael Jones were Pope, he'd become a Catholic. Andrew, for those of you who don't know, is, I, I don't want to say, this is not a slur, I think he's the main Nazi in America. Uh, so uh, what occurred to me uh, then is the same thing occurred to me when I was in David, with David Duke, in Guadalajara, I said, become a Catholic, and I think he did, although that's not been public knowledge. Anyway, uh, I hate to disappoint Andrew Anglin or anyone else out there, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to become Pope. I know this comes as a shock to this audience, uh, but I don't think it's going to happen. And I'm saying, if you think it's going to happen, you're deluding yourself and you're preventing something good from happening, which is actually dealing with the actual reality of a place like this parish in Muskegon. If you're insisting on one thing or the other, some type of special condition, uh, 
here that if such and such happens, then I'll become a Catholic. Like, or if uh, they follow the 1958 missile, I'll go to mass. Uh, but, or if this or if that, uh, you will miss out on the wedding feast, which is what I attended that last Saturday. And that would be a shame because it's waiting for you at some place or other. Uh, just as I'd like to think that somewhere or other there's a, a guy waiting to find one of those girls on the step of the church or there's a girl on the step waiting to find some guy who's going to show up. That's God's plan. And it, I'm telling you, the good news is that it's happening. And it doesn't have to wait for me to become Pope. I know you're all disappointed in that. Anyway, this occurred to me because I watched Tucker Carlson's interview with Andrew Tate this week. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, I found it kind of disappointing. Uh, it's obvious that Tucker Carlson really admires Andrew Tate. Uh, wasn't clear why. Uh, Andrew Tate got to state his legal case. If you don't know, he was arrested by Bulgarian, uh, no, I'm sorry, Bulgarian, no, Romanian police uh, for uh, engaging in human trafficking. That's the thing. He defended himself on that in this interview, said it never happened, uh, and blah, blah, blah. He said that he was taken down by people who didn't like the fact that he was telling young men to act like men. Well, and somebody wrote to me and said, you've got to watch the video because he's saying the same thing that you're saying. Is that what I'm saying? I think there is... Uh, something similar uh, between what both of us are saying. But I started to think about uh, the differences more than the similarities as the more I listened to the interview. So who is, who is Andrew Tate? He's a, a, a former kickboxer, uh, a guy who obviously spends a lot of time working out. Um, he's a guy who likes fast cars and apparently bought a lot of them uh, from uh, making a lot of money as an influencer on, on the internet. Uh, and then suddenly his whole world collapsed around him when he got arrested. Uh, it wasn't pleasant. He apparently spent months in jail and now he's under house arrest and awaiting some type of uh, uh, trial uh, on from a legal system that is dubious at best. The American embassy uh, sent someone to meet with him twice. He doesn't hold out much hope there. So what, what, what is he? What is he? It turns through the course of the conversation, it also turned out that he's apparently a Muslim because when he was put in that cell, he started reading uh, the Quran. Okay, so that might explain what seems to be some type of ambiguity there in terms of his... Uh, marital status. I couldn't tell whether he was married or not, or I couldn't tell whether he was married to more than one woman or not. It turns out he, he apparently has kids, uh, but I couldn't tell. Uh, and so I kept trying to, you know, kind of pin him down. Uh, and the more I listened, the more I realized uh, there's a philosophy here that's coming out. This is what this man got rich doing. There's a whole generation of young people who are completely rootless uh, completely uh, have been robbed of their identity as young males. Tucker Carlson talked about this at the beginning, uh, about extreme cases of like 12-year-olds uh, or 10-year-olds who are being uh, boys who are being uh, demonized for being boys and being led into think that they can become girls. 
the horrible situation of transgenderism, the horrible attack on children, uh, transgenderism being uh, the genital mutilation of children, which should never be allowed, should be illegal. Uh, but it's not uh, because there's a, people in charge of this culture who want to destroy everyone. Uh, it's, it's a long story, and I've spent my entire life trying to figure out the story. Libido dominandi was one attempt, and that's the thesis of that book, is that sexual liberation is a form of political control. We are now in extreme forms of sexual liberation. You might even call it gender liberation, where you can think that given the illusion that you could somehow li liberate yourself from the gender which God assigned to you when he gave, when he formed your soul in your mother's womb. Uh, that's, where they, that's where they are, and that's what Tate's fighting against, and Tucker Carlson's cheering him on from the sidelines by giving him the interview. But the more I thought about it, I, I, I began to think there's a philosophy here. It's not really Muslim. He's an American. He wasn't born into Islam, I don't think. I don't know. Uh, it's Stoicism. That's the philosophy, because he talked about suffering. Now, he can talk, he's got the credentials to talk about suffering because he's certainly been through that um, because of the experience of being thrown in jail in a country where he can't follow the language. The difference between Andrew Tate and Liam Noonan and Adam Jones uh, and E. Michael Jones is that he never learned the language of the country that he lived in. He's living this kind of isolated life, kind of cut off from the logos of the people who live there. Uh, and he's developed this philosophy, which apparently resonates with a lot of young men uh, uh, who want to be Stoics. I, I think every American wants to be a Stoic. That is the persona of basically every major uh, Hollywood movie star, uh, from who? John Wayne to Sylvester Stallone. Uh, you suffer. You suffer and you don't cry out in pain. You suffer. This is what uh, Andrew Tate is saying. I'm going to suffer. And then he enters, uh, brings God into it and said, God put him in jail, which I thought was something more than uh, usually uh, insightful in terms of the conversation. And at this point, he starts talking about, uh, didn't connect it directly, but he seems he's talking about Islam. But at this point, I start to wonder, is Islam going to give him the understanding of suffering that he needs? My good friend, uh, the late uh, Nader Talabzada, uh, the Persian uh, film director and cultural entrepreneur, the man who's responsible for bringing me to Tehran for the first time 10 years ago, did a, did a movie about Jesus Christ, uh, but it was the Nestorian Jesus Christ. And uh, Christ was not God. He was a man who, uh, in this movie, seemed kind of clueless. Uh, but then we have the uh, explanation, the Islamic explanation, that he really didn't suffer and die on the cross. He got, he got, he snuck away, and they put Judas on the cross, and he was crucified. And that is a much more satisfying ending from a human perspective, because he deserved to be crucified. But it's not the story. The story is that Jesus Christ did actually suffer and die, and he was actually both God and man. And to put all those things together is uh, challenging. Uh, but that's what the Catholic Church has been trying to do ever since Jesus Christ got crucified, ever since they looked at that cross 
and they, it looked as if the whole world that they were planning had just collapsed and all of our hopes just died with this guy that we've been following for three years. Uh, and then it turns out that it wasn't the end. That Christ came back from the dead, but they, the fact that he came back from the dead didn't negate the suffering. And he proved that when Thomas, Doubting Thomas showed up uh, and he said, here, there's the wound in my side. Put your hand in there. Here are the wounds in my fingers. They're still there. Even on the risen Christ, they're still there, which is some type of vindication of suffering. There is purpose to suffering. Simplest explanation is, for the most part, you would never think about God unless you suffered. There are no atheists in foxholes the purpose of suffering, especially at the end of your life, is to bring you closer to God. That's what brings you closer to God, okay? But there's a redemptive type of suffering. Your suffering gives you a power that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And that brings me to the book that I talked about last week, which is Christus in Dachau. I've gotten a lot of feedback uh, from uh, my podcast of last week talking about uh, what is basically the new narrative which was the old narrative. That's the conclusion I've come to about the book that I've just written about the Holocaust narrative. There was a narrative, and it was that book that I held up last week, Christus and Dachau. That was, I just, uh, over the past week, I've written another chapter to the book uh, and consulted German Wikipedia, which says, uh, you know, it's not a pro-Catholic source. It's basically said that... Uh, Christus and Dachau was the definitive, it was the standard reference work about what happened in the camps. And it had 50,000 copies in Germany alone it sold, translated into various languages, and that was the standard reference work until Elie Wiesel collaborated with Francois Mauriac, and they brought out the new narrative, which is the Jewish narrative, and so just as uh, Lentz, Father Lentz says, godlessness caused the Third Reich, Elie Wiesel, the Jew, the revolutionary who turns everything upside down, makes the thesis of his book, Night, God Died at Auschwitz. And so what began as a narrative that showed that God was there for you in your suffering and that he listened to your prayers and he answered your prayers, got hijacked by the Jews and turned into the exact opposite message. Dachau, as I think I said last week, was the paradigm of the concentration camp during the 1950s. It was created in 1933. It was the first concentration camp that was created. It was the one that lasted the longest time. It was created to basically silence the Catholic Church. And what resulted was a huge number of priests, over, almost 3,000 priests from all over Europe, ended up in Dachau because that was God's plan. Because God's plan invariably involves suffering. And God allows you to suffer because he knows that suffering will improve you. He knows that you, can certain, you cannot get to the next level unless you're willing to go through suffering, which is precisely what Jesus Christ had to discover as man when he had to be crucified in order to bring about the redemption of the world and end up as the resurrected Christ. 
That's what happened. That narrative, we, once again, Catholics are victims of identity theft. Our story, which is the story of Christus and Dachau, got stolen. The Jews took over the narrative, and since they control the publishing industry, they made that narrative normative, not only for the entire world, but for the Catholic Church, thanks to the fecklessness of largely the German bishops. I have said it before, but I'll say it again. Ratzinger should have gone to Dachau when he became Pope, and he should have held up that book, Christus and Dachau, and say, we are taking back our narrative now. We Catholics are taking back our narrative. We're taking it back from the Jews who stole it from us. Anyway, that's it. Let's hear what you have to say. All right. Uh, hello, everybody. Once again, this is uh, Mike Bajakis, Dr. Jones' assistant. This is the call-in section of our program. Uh, for those who don't know, the call-ins are made via our Telegram channel. Everyone watching in various streams, uh, the links are going to be in the description. Uh, on Telegram, I'm going to call on those who raise their hand, and then later in the stream, I'll read off uh, questions via Cozy. Uh, try to keep questions on the subject. Uh, try to keep to one question. Be respectful of time, and whatever you do, do not forget to unmute yourself. Let us go to Telegram. Here we are. Uh, Daniel Stone, go ahead. Hello, Dr. Jones. Yes. How are you? How are you today, sir? Good, good. Good to hear. I just uh, literally started listening to the stream, so I'm, I'm catching up a little late, but I uh, was fast forwarding at 2x speed. So um, I uh, wanted to ask your opinion on something. Um, what you were mentioning about uh, uh, people finding brides and uh, you know young men finding brides and young women finding husbands. I was kind of thinking back to kind of the biblical order, at least in terms of how it's uh, li listed listed to us in Genesis. Um, Adam being given his purpose first by God, uh, identifying his purpose, which was you know, naming the animals and being basically head gardener. Um, but he still had purpose. And then when that purpose was fulfilled, he was working that purpose. That was clearly defined to him. He knew it, and he was pleasing God by doing such. That's when God said it's time for you to have a spouse it's time for you to have a partner just like the rest of my creation and because god obviously identified that he needed a partner in order to fulfill the greatness that he was designed for um that's my take on it but i wanted to ask your your thoughts on um i see western men um myself included for many years uh faltering uh, in life simply because they did not have purpose and I see uh, not just uh, the, the Jewish agenda, but the, uh, the agenda has always been to remove men from finding their purpose and having, a, 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 I guess you could say, a why. When they get up in the morning, what is their why? Why are they doing what they are doing? Why do they choose to even get out of bed? Um, if it's something that's outside of themselves, between you know, anything other than between them and God, it seems to be kind of something that can be modified by the world. You know, a lot of men, young men, obviously would like to have uh, a woman, but we all know that women can be easily led astray. Eve proved that to us from the start. Um, but men can also be led astray. And I wanted to ask your opinion. Do you think if we as a church 
Um, I am not a Catholic by name, but I, I, I entirely agree with your viewpoints on so many different things. But I believe as a, as a Christian church, all Christians who believe that Jesus is king, if we can identify that helping men to identify their purpose is crucial to one, us winning, but two, us just simply holding the line for the time being and getting men identified with finding their purpose. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's right. That's true. Uh, but I have to say that, uh, you know, I, uh, the way I found my purpose was by getting married. So, I mean, my wife took a big chance on me because I was a kind of confused uh, I wasn't a teenager anymore, but I wasn't, I was 21 years old and she was 20 years old. So hardly formed and didn't understand anything, totally confused because the cultural revolution had swept through my, the Jesuit university where I was and everything, everything seemed to be coming unmoored and I didn't know what, uh, which end was up. But I knew that I wanted a life and I knew that the only way I could get a life was to get married. And that was cultural, and I'm glad I did. And I had, uh, from what the testimony of my cousins, I, like Liam, uh, I was the oldest of my generation. And uh, I, I assume Liam's example will have an effect on his generation, because my example of me getting married at that point in 1969, uh, one week before Woodstock, uh, did set a kind of pattern that people followed afterwards. So if you're asking me, do I need a purpose before I, uh, uh, do I need to be fully formed and mature before I get married? No, I, I would say you need to get married in order to become mature and fully formed. I think that's the way it works. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. Um, You're maybe welcome. a topic for a further discussion if possible, but later. All right. Uh, next, we're going to go to where is it? Patrick C. Go ahead, Patrick. Hello, hello, Dr. Jones. I, I'm in kind of a, a similar situation to uh, my girlfriend is in Russia right now. Uh, I met her maybe it, it was 2016. I went over there for three months and we've been talking ever since every day. And it's just been kind of a struggle to try to get her over here. Um, you know, I'm Catholic. A, a, str she, a struggle in terms of getting a passport or a visa or uh, uh, all sorts of things. Cult yeah, that, cultural that, issues and, or personal issues uh, or what? Yeah, yeah. Well, she she grew up Muslim in the Muslim uh, part of Russia in Bashkortostan. Uh, it's a place where you go and you see a village, and you'll see half of the cemetery is Orthodox crosses. The other half is the crescent moon of the for the Muslims. Uh, so, you know, it's her, her sister married a Christian. Uh, she wants to know more about Jesus and I've been helping her, but, uh, there's only so much I can do before she can come over here, you know? And, and the problem is the embassy is shut down. They won't let anybody come over here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a situation that I just, I'm in kind of a limbo, so to speak until things get, uh, straightened out. But, uh, can you go into more process, you know, like the more of the process of how they were able to get their spouses over here and get married, you know, because it'd, be, it'd be nice if I could get her over here and just see what the culture is like. I don't, I don't know what, so, I, know, uh, Katya's been here for, uh, in Michigan for, for months, about a year ago. She was there and she was living with the Noonan family, kind of helping them out. 
Uh, I don't know what they had to go through to get her over here. I know that uh, yeah. Adam had to go through a lot of uh, rigmarole when he and Anna left, left Russia. And that was during a time when there was no conflict, uh, when we were at peace with Russia. So uh, it's, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There are all kinds of problems now. I, I think, look, the, the, message, the message of, I keep coming back to the message of Dachau. Uh, they were subjected, the priests were subjected to brutal uh, SS criminals. They were criminals. They had been basically in prisons, and then they put on the SS uniform, and they became guards at the stamp, camp. The, the, uh, Father Lenz said, we were helpless. And you're always going to find yourself in a situation when you're helpless in this life. And at that point, you have to do what they did in Dachau, which is to pray, uh, to help you to get out of a situation over which you have no control. If we were never in a situation where, over which we had no control, we would be God. He's the only one who's in a situation like that. We need some type of help, and that was the message of Dachau. If you're in a helpless situation, you have to pray uh, because God will answer your prayers, and he did answer their prayers in ways that were completely unsuspected but demonstrated. This was the message of Dachau. When, uh, in August of 1942, the priests were on the brink of death by starvation. And in, on the 15th of August... A new directive, the Feast of the Assumption, a new directive came down from Berlin saying, look, you can't starve these people to death. We need workers. Let them bring in import food packages. And they all revived at that point because God answered their prayers and didn't want them to die. He wanted them to suffer. Many of priests did die, but he didn't want all of them to die so he could take that message out. That's the message that the Jews stole from us when they promoted Elizel and their, their Holocaust narrative. That's the message they stole from us, and that's the message that needs to be brought back here, because that was God's purpose in allowing that suffering. Yep. I, I purchased that book by Father Lenz. Uh, it's in the mail, so I, I'll be reading it. Good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, next, let's go to Cypher Zone. Go ahead, Cypher Zone. Hello, Dr. Jones. Yes. Can I listen? Yes. Uh, this is not my question, it's a question from a friend. Uh, he wants to ask you, uh, uh, what do you think about structuralism? I don't know how to speak it properly. And can what you, do you think- Can you say, it, uh, say that again? What is it? Institutionalism. Institutional? Structure, it's about the structure. It's structuralism, structuralism, something like that. You mean the, liter exactly. the literary, the literary criticism phenomenon, structuralism. Uh, exactly, and he okay. also, he's also asking what what do you think about uh, René Girard uh, in that regard? René Girard. Okay, yeah, I, people yeah. keep asking me. I'm going to have to read René Girard at one point. He talks about mimesis. He talks about the scapegoat. He talks about sacrifice and the role of this in culture. Tries to apply it. I mean, it's obviously part of the Christian uh, story. Uh, structuralism was a, a, a French uh, literary phenomenon, literary critical phenomenon that was basically kind of formalism. Uh, and like all, all formalisms, it doesn't deal with the reality. Okay, it deals with forms. Uh, and the dangers of beauty, I said there's two issues here. Uh, to have beauty, uh, you have to have the form and you have to have the content. 
if you're all you're talking about is the form, you always come up with the same answer and the whole every it becomes a pointless exercise because every poem or every book is going to come up with some type of formalistic answer, which means it's going to be reduced to forms, which will eliminate all of the life part of which gives it uh, uh, readability and makes you want to understand it. Form and life have to come together. If it's just form, it's not going to be satisfying. Thank you very much, Dr. John. You're welcome. Let's go to... Uh, interesting discussion with Tate. I saw that too, and I couldn't help but think of pride. I mean, a different kind of pride than what we're used to hearing these days. But that made me think, uh, what is the relationship? And I never got much of this in catechism class, the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the seven deadly sins. And is it blasphemy for a Catholic to be waving a pride flag? Okay, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, are God's way of giving direction to the Hebrew people who were wandering in, in the desert. Uh, it's another word for the moral law, uh, the natural law, the law that is based, the essential things that you must not do if you want to be uh, in, in line with God. The seven deadly sins uh, are obviously related uh, because we're talking about the moral law as well, but it's a later type of abstraction uh, based on thought about thousands of years of, of uh, Hebrew culture and Christian culture, beginning with Moses. Uh, so the se pride is uh, the, the, the top of the list the seven dead, of the seven deadly sins. Uh, it's the worst of the sins. It's the sin that uh, Satan committed because he couldn't, didn't have a body and so couldn't have committed any of the sins of the body like lust or gluttony or any of those things. But all, all of these things, especially pride, are portals as well which allow the devil into your life. If you uh, fail in any of these things, in any of these areas, you'll be opening yourself up to malignant influence, and that malignant influence will take over your life if you don't do something about it. If you, they're all interconnected as well. And so if you sin against pride, for example, you open yourself and you'll find yourself being involved in all the other sins as well. I think that's the best explanation I give of the relationship between the two of those things. Well, you covered a lot more than my catechism class ever did. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, next, we have uh, Jordan D. Go ahead, Jordan. Don't forget to unmute. Hey, sorry about that. Um, I'm a, I just discovered your guys's or your work rather recently. Um, and my wife and I met back and this is a little personal, but my wife and I met, uh, in high school, we got reconnected about three years ago and got married. Um, and we came into the, the church together, that being the, the Orthodox church, not the Catholic church. But, um, so we, I recently found that we can't seem to get, uh, pregnant and my wife works and I work, but I don't ever see a future of me being able to, you know, uh, sustain us with just one income. And my question, I guess, is do you have any advice for somebody in my situation? Yes, I was in exactly the same situation. So uh, for, first of all, if, you, if you're dealing, if you're dealing with in, infertility problems, there are doctors that can take care of that uh, or help you take care of it. But uh, if you're involved in 
natural family planning can be used to uh, prevent uh, conception uh, simply by, it's not contraception, it's simply not abstaining from intercourse during the fertile period. But if you um, know when the fertile period is, you can also have sex at that point and you'll have a higher chance of getting pregnant. So that might be the solution to the problem. Some people, some women have very short fertile uh, periods during their menstrual cycle. Okay, the other thing is uh, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, so the idea of a child somehow interfering, uh, look, we are all, every man now is in some sense dependent on his wife as the main breadwinner. This is the, the world that these people have created for us. This is what feminism is about. It's a way of destroying the family. It's a way of disrupting the culture and turning everybody into docile slaves. Uh, that's the world we live in. And I was in that situation uh, after we got married. My wife uh, was a teacher. And at that point in Philadelphia, the teacher salary was fairly good. And we got married. And I was uh, in graduate school and she was a teacher making the money. And suddenly uh, she got pregnant. And at that point, I made what I now consider a kind of heroic decision. But it just seemed uh, uh, there was no doubt in my mind that she was going to stay home and take care of that child. Uh, I'm not going to put it in a daycare center. I'm not going to let somebody else raise my child. We uh, knew that the baby had to be breastfed. I can't do it. I'm not like Pete Buttigieg who can do that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, I knew that I couldn't do it. And so she, so she gave up her job. She Actually, it was more maternity leave. But and we were plunged into poverty at that point. We were really poor, uh, and uh, something we just—that's part of life. You're going through this phase in life. It didn't last forever, and it ended when I got the job in Germany and started earning a decent salary there. So just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there, and just because it's not not there now doesn't mean it will be there, won't be there in the future, because God is in charge of human history, and he's in charge of your life, and he wants you to have children. That's why he created marriage and the reproductive system and all those other type of things. And what you'll find, uh, what I found, let me put it this way, what I found is when I had the responsibility, I got the job. Uh, before that, I, I had no reason to have uh, a job because I had no responsibility to be head of the family. So that's the way things followed in my life. I think that's God's plan. You step up to the plate now. I'm the guy. I'm the father. I'm the head of the family. I'm the one who has to provide. And suddenly there was the job and I took it. That's the way it works. If, if God forbid, we end up, you know, she's, she's gone to a fertility clinic and she's, she's able, she, everything checks out for her. I have yet to do that. Um, I'm a bit weary of doctors, but if, if there ever comes a point where we discover we just can't have children, how, how, how do you have meaning in the, in the marriage? Um, and then also we're currently living with my parents. I don't know if that's the best thing to no, do. It, it's not a good idea. Certainly loosens up the financial um, right. aspect I under, of Right. I understand. Sometimes necessity makes it that way. It's not the ideal situation. Um, so, say, restate the first question. You distract me. What was the first question? Well, sorry. So basically, um, if we ever discover that it's not, it's not possible for us to conceive, 
um, how, how do we implement meaning and keep the marriage alive? Oh, so there, there, are, there, are really two, there are two aspects to the sexual act. There is the unitive and the procreative aspect. And if through no fault of your own you can't conceive, that doesn't mean you're not married and you're not, and you're not uh, united as husband and wife. It's a cross that you have to bear. We all have to bear crosses in life. We all have, there's always some type of suffering. And people, uh, because of this mania, this hatred of fertility, people don't, uh, uh, they ignore the fact that there's sometimes couples, especially now, it's increasing from the time when I was, uh, when I got married. There are people having trouble conceiving. And if it turns out that it's impossible, uh, that doesn't mean you're not married. It just means that this is a cross you have to bear and God has another plan for, for you and your life. Thank you so much. God bless you. You're welcome. All right. Uh, next, we have Dan M. Go ahead, Dan. Hi, doctor. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, you can hear me? Okay, great. Yeah, I've been enjoying your books since, uh, I guess, for the last three or four years. I got all your books that Amazon sold before they took them down. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, are you aware of a book called Super Mob by Gus Russo, where he talks about how the Jews stole the Nisei, the Japanese Americans land for rig bidding, bidding just like they did in uh, Russia. Uh, a guy named Judge Baseldon uh, got all his buddies to buy up billions of dollars in today's money for pennies on the dollar. No, I'm not familiar with that book, but you're, the plan is, is one that is fairly uh, well known. If you want my honest opinion, that's what the war in the Ukraine is about. It's about uh, yeah, the, the Jew Zelensky uh, collaborating with the, the Jew Larry Fink at BlackRock, uh, driving out the Ukrainian people and then offering BlackRock some of the best farming land in the world for pennies on the dollar. So I'm not surprised that that, that would take pl that happen else elsewhere. It seems like a well-worn plan. It, used it over and Yeah, it is. Thanks, doctor. You're welcome. Elros. Go ahead, Elros. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Um, pleasure to speak with you again, Dr. Jones. Uh, you mentioned that Andrew Tate is a Muslim, uh, which is not surprising to me. I mean, I, I, I discovered that as well uh, recently. And um, I, I don't find him compelling in the first place. Uh, the good things that he talks about are said much better by other people. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't, I know you're not endorsing him by talking about him and I, I don't like to see him being endorsed, but um, more specifically, I'd like to ask you about Islam uh, because you have a, a particular kind of interface with the Muslim world that uh, very few Westerners have. So I, I see Islam as a totalizing system um, this is more true, I think, of Sunni Islam than the Shia. I, I would be less concerned about Shia Muslims. But uh, in, in the Middle East and in Africa particularly, uh, Christians are, are persecuted by these people uh, incessantly. And in Africa, um, 
Islam and Christianity are both growing exponentially. And um, I, I don't think that these two systems can coexist. It doesn't seem like it can. Um, I think history has sort of borne this out, especially if we regard Islam as a kind of a, an essentially false or heretical understanding of um, the biblical literature and Jesus Christ. So given that in places like Africa, um, where both religions are growing exponentially and that Muslims don't seem to have, particularly Sunni Muslims don't seem to, uh, in their own nations, in their own Islamic states, they don't, um, they don't seem to be interested in uh, living with or being friendly with Christians. Isn't this a, uh, a problem that the church is going to have to address at some point? Yeah, I, first of all, uh, I think that uh, there are people out there who uh, understand that there is an animosity between Muslims and Christians in Africa, and then they want to exacerbate it. I'm talking about the CIA, the American uh, presence there. Uh, if you leave them alone, people generally come to some type of understanding and some type of modus vivendi. I think that the, the Islamic world was off on its own pretty much uh, by itself for centuries, uh, but now it's faced with a different situation. And I'm thinking now of the, uh, let's say the situation in London, where you have Muslim immigrants uh, who are representing a representative of, of traditional culture, suddenly coming in contact with the LGBTQ uh, ideology, and they don't like it. These people uh, would be natural allies of the Christians in that area. That phenomenon, uh, which is, ba which is uh, I think, the basis uh, based on an evil plot to basically destroy European culture, is something that God can turn to good. And I think if those people living there could get together and talk to each other, I think they'd, say they'd find common cause, in spite of the fact that the Muslims were put there to be a, a kind of fifth column. I think it's the same thing. Same thing is true of France right now. We know that the riots now uh, were basically fomented by uh, the uh, Americans. Uh, the uh, the ambassador Rivkin, who was a Hollywood mogul, was appointed by Obama to become president uh, ambassador of France. As soon as he got there, he noticed that Frenchmen were white, and he started to agitate, uh, wanted to create the racial conflict there that suddenly found expression in these riots. The antidote to that is all, there is an antidote, and I think uh, Alain Soral uh, is someone who understood it. He has an operation called Egalité et Reconciliation. He worked with Giudonné uh, and Balabala, uh, a black uh, Francophone African, uh, and uh, they tried to defuse this Muslim-Christian uh, animosity. At the same time, they tried to defuse the left-right uh, polarization. So they are uh, left-wing when it comes to uh, the economy, but right-wing when it comes to morality. And they're trying to come to some type of grips with the problem. I think it's possible. I think it's possible to have this dialogue. That's the conclusion I came to after all those years of going to Iran. I don't know what happened. I, th I was waiting for my ticket to go over there to do the uh, book tour for the Persian, the uh, Farsi edition of Libido Dominandi. Uh, it hasn't come. I don't know what's happening over there. But I think they're going to have to come to some type of modus vivendi. They're going to have to uh, 
they're going to have to deal with the uh, the anti-intellectualism of the Islamic past uh, and come to some type of basis uh, collaboration with Logos. And I think just because it didn't happen in the past doesn't mean it can't happen in the future. Um, so in conclusion, do you think that the, the Logos intends for Islam to predure alongside uh, the true religion, um, the Catholic no, I religion? No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I said we, I've had dialogues with the... Uh, with Iranians, and I said, I don't, I don't want it just to be Catholic-Muslim dialogue, because at that point, you just feel as if you're defending your, your own position. I said, I just want to have a discussion about Logos. Let's see how far right. that we can do by talking about that. I, I said it. Uh, I said I, I was interested in unprotected intercourse, uh, <laughs> and uh, that was funny. But uh, I think that's one way of putting it. In other words, let's just, let's just talk about what the issues are that are facing us. That was the kind of the genius of Nader Talabzada, the late Nader Talabzada, is that he got all those people to come over to Tehran and sit down and talk with each other. I think that was a great achievement on his part. He died, uh, so far as I know, no one's been able to carry on his work, uh, but that doesn't mean someone won't carry it on in the future. I think that was the right, he understood that that was the right way, the right path to take. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Pleasure You're welcome. You again. You're welcome. So let's go to the uh, the uh, written yep. question. Yep, jumping to Cozy here. All right. Um, let's see. First question from Catulus. Uh, Dr. Jones, uh, can you say something about Father Chad Ripperger's idea of generational spirits? Is it heretical? I don't know enough about it to make a comment on it. I tried to write his, read his book on psychology, and I have to admit that uh, I couldn't, couldn't see, I, I couldn't make my way through it. It was too different than my understanding of psychology, even though I'm familiar with rational psychologies. So I, I can't comment on it. I'm sorry. All right. From uh, Kingfish AF, uh, Dr. Jones, does China's hostility towards religion stem from fear of its use as a front for Western intelligence? W what hostility? Uh, China's hostility. China's toward, hostility. Yeah, yes, it comes. The fear is from uh, uh, imperialism, specifically British imperialism, specifically the imperialism that got these people, uh, the Chinese people, addicted to opium, so that the Brits could pay off their tea bill. Uh, they're buying tea from the Chinese, and the humiliation that the Chinese. Uh, were subjected to when the British sent their navy up the river and bombarded their cities. This was a horrible humiliation for the Chinese, and they've been skeptical ever since. But it goes back farther than that. It goes back to the Chinese rights controversy, uh, where basically a heroic figure like the Jesuit Matteo Ricci went to China and understood, I've got to learn the language. So he not learned Chinese, okay, an achievement for any Westerner. And then he wrote a great classic in the Chinese language, and he was on the verge of meeting with the emperor and having an intelligent discussion when he died. And unfortunately, his work did not get carried on. There was a controversy in Rome, the Chinese rights controversy, about basically, depending on what, how you want to describe it, what is ancestor worship? Is it idolatry or is it like going to the cemetery on Memorial Day? Uh, the Jesuits felt that it was the latter, and I believe it was the... Uh, 
who was it? The Dominicans who felt it was the other and they won out. And so the moment was lost. And the crucial moment was Logos. The crucial issue was Logos. You have to learn the Chinese language if you want to talk to the Chinese to gain their trust, to give some sense that they you understand their culture. And so when Ricci died, some car, some bishop shows up, some representative of the Vatican who claims he speaks Chinese and can't, makes a fool out of himself because he can't interpret the, the, the characters that he needed to do. And so at that point, the emperor said, look, we've had enough of your, your bickering. I'm closing. The, the discussion is over. We're not bringing Christianity to China. That was a tragedy. It didn't thwart God. God did bring Christianity. There's a, a huge Catholic church in China. Nobody knows how many people are in it. Uh, but the government is trying to control it because the government is a fearful government. And they're fearful of things that they don't understand. And they base this fear on the way the West has treated them up to this point. And let's be honest, the way the West is treated, specifically the great Satan, the American empire is treating the Chinese right now. Let's face it, they have reason to fear uh, the people in the Biden administration. And proof of that is the attack on Russia now. All right, uh, from Hate for the Left, a question. Uh, does the church approve of things like ectolife the world's first artificial womb facility. No. No. For uh, human, uh, human life has to come from the matrix of human love, which is the love of a man and a woman, according to God's plan, which means uh, the, the, the child grows up in the womb of its mother. Anytime you remove yourself from this situation, you're going to end up in human trafficking, which is exactly what this, the homosexuals are involved in. Pete Buttigieg and his uh, boyfriend, his husband. Why, why are both guys husbands? I don't get that. But anyway, they, they are engaging in human trafficking and creating a parody of the family. And uh, Pete will say things like, well, I have to go on paternity leave because I have to take care of my children. I'm really concerned about the welfare of my children. So, Pete, if you were really concerned about the welfare of those children, you would let them be raised by the mother who bore them and not to narcissistic uh, people who are legends in their own mind and use other people as stepping stones for their career. From Sailor Twift, uh, Dr. Jones, is there a plan to do any events in Philadelphia? We miss you here. Allah wills it, it will happen. So uh, give me a call and we'll set up the next, the next event in Philadelphia. We had a great, great lecture at John Haas's uh, Catholic Institute, the Institute for Catholic Culture, in a great uh, old home uh, right off of City Line Avenue. A beautiful building. Grace Kelly went there for dancing lessons when she was in Philadelphia. Uh, per, big crowd, enthusiastic crowd. I gave the first uh, lecture on the dangers of beauty there. I'd love to come back and give part two of that uh, lecture series on uh, music in Germany. So just you know, contact me at jones at culturewars.com and we'll, we'll set up another, another event. All right, uh, from The Beautiful Negro, 
Um, what is Dr. Jones' opinion on Ethan Ralph's journey? He is struggling to overcome alcohol, drug addiction, sex addiction. I don't know anything about it. I know Ethan arranged a couple of debates with me. I've never met him personally. Uh, if you're struggling with alcohol, uh, you know, there, there, there is a way to deal with that problem. Uh, it's not insurmountable. Nothing is surmountable uh, with God's help. And that is the lesson of Dachau that we have to bring back, and I'm hoping to bring back in, in the, uh, the Holocaust narrative book. From WK Worldwide, uh, Dr. Jones, thoughts on the Jonah Hill situation? Isn't it, isn't it anti-Semitic to criticize Hollywood Jews? What's the Jonah Hill situation? Jonah Hill, that the actor, uh, I guess uh, his wife is divorcing him under, he, he's, she says he's a misogynist and abusive. But then when you look into it, it just seems like he's controlling, not necessarily too abusive. Is Jonah Hill a Jew? Jonah Hill's, yeah, he's a Jew. He did, uh, what, Su Superbad um, was okay. where he got his big uh, okay. break, I think. Uh, for, first of all, uh, let me give you absolution for the imaginary sin of anti-Semitism. It is not a sin to criticize Jews. It may be a sin of omission not to criticize Jews because by doing that, you allow them to take over your culture and ruin it. And that is the lesson of the last, the entire uh, post-World War II period of increasing Jewish control corresponding to increasing cultural decadence uh, wars, usury, all this type of stuff. We have a duty to stand up to this injustice. And if it means uh, identifying the Jew as the culprit, then we have a duty to do that. It's not, there's nothing wrong with doing that. The wrong is uh, not doing it out of fear. Uh, from a user on Cozy, uh, Dr. Jones, can you recommend a good commentary on the Bible that is not subversive? Isn't, the, isn't there the Jerome commentary? I, uh, this is not my field. If, if you contact me, I can refer you to someone. Contact me at jones at culturewars.com and I can refer you to someone who can help you out in this regard. Um, from VW Mao, uh, Manu, uh, however you pronounce that, uh, what, uh, Dr. Jones, what are your th uh, thoughts on the Jewish role in the rise of Islam? He said, context, Jewish revolts began Byzantium. Yes, it's, it's an important topic. Uh, uh, right now, uh, Gabriel Reynolds at Notre Dame is writing important books on the origins of Islam, and it's, it's going to be a crucial moment for, for Islam. This is Islam coming in contact with the, the modern world, with the world of scholarship. Islam is always headed toward a, a kind of fundamentalism whenever there was uh, an intellectual who arose like uh, Averroes or Avicenna. He ended up being persecuted by the, um, by the caliph. Uh, Surawardi uh, was decapitated by Saladin, who was <laughs> Lessing's idea of the enlightened uh, Muslim monarch. It's, it's happening right now. St. John Damascene uh, dealt with this at the beginning. But I think we're going to find out more and more about what's, what's going on, uh, the scripture scholarship uh, as it's applied to, to Islam. And I think it's our job to do whatever we can to help them move into the direction of Logos in this regard. From Slytherin Misty Cowboy, uh, when will we stop obfuscating the blatant reality of anti-whiteism, Dr. Jones? 
I think there, there, that's a pr fairly common topic. I, I don't see it being obliterated. If you're, if you're asking that uh, mainstream media come out and talk about it, no, they're not going to talk about it. But nobody listens to mainstream media anyway. It seems like a fairly topic, fairly common topic. Uh, all I'm saying is that you have to distinguish between the category of the mind and the category of reality. Okay, there is a all you have to do is watch commercials on TV and you realize there's a campaign against white people out there. Does that mean that I'm a white person? No, it doesn't mean that. That's the distinction I would like to make. I am not going to adopt the oppressive categories of my oppressors. I'm not going to impose that on me. So as I said before, you know, at the biker rally, someone yelled, hey, asshole, and everybody turned around. Well, that's not a good idea. You need your own identity, and you don't need other people conferring an identity on you to punish you. And that's precisely this white identity, and that is precisely what is happening in France right now. Because the Jew Rifkin shows up, and he says, oh, wait a minute, the French are white. As soon as the French become white, then he's going to create the counterforce, which is the so-called black people, um, uh, and then you've got racial conflict. And the racial conflict is not solvable because you can't change the color of your skin. So that is exactly the type of dead end. I mean, we have to recognize that there's a campaign out there, but we don't have to identify with the categories that suck us into that campaign. That's the distinction I'd like to make. One more question. All right, from Adoring Fan, um, are the Sabbatean Frankist Jews still active today? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. Uh, the Frankist, or it's a controversial topic whether they were sincere or not, whether they came from the from Shabbatai Zevi or not. Anyway, but not, as far as I know, I don't know of their activity today. Anyway, great another great discussion. Thank you all for participating. We'll see you again next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. You have a good one.